This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. You can join my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, each week as I dive deep into a new case with you guys. We created this show to give our victims stories exposure, to give them a voice, and to stand up for them. And by doing that, we're able to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everybody. If you listened last week, you know that we did an episode to honor Human Trafficking Prevention Awareness Month, which was January. Also in January is National Stalking Awareness Month, NSAM. And January 2023 is actually the 19th annual NSAM. And this is a call to action to recognize and respond to the serious crime of stalking. A great place to get information on stalking is the Stalking Awareness and Resource Center, SPARK. They encourage you to teach, learn, share, and reflect about stalking. They write on their website that stalking impacts one in three women and one in six men in the United States. Yet, there is no stalking hotline, there are no stalking crisis centers, and it is often difficult for stalking victims to recognize what they're experiencing or where to get help. So this SPARK organization helps teach other organizations on how to help. They're a federally funded project, and they're, you know, providing education to law enforcement and workplaces and just a bunch of of people, professionals who are tasked with keeping victims safe and holding offenders accountable. So I wanted to put out a little bit of information on stalking for Stalking Awareness Month. And I highly encourage you to visit the Spark website because it was very informative and you can figure out ways you can help and you can be aware. And then I kind of wanted to talk about cyber stalking a little because we're in 2023. Technology is rampant. It's all around us. So cyber stalking is something that's happening more and more often. According to researchgate.net, cyber stalking is practiced by internet abusers to harass, victimize, and mock peers, teachers, coworkers, neighbors, and others. It is defined as the repeated use of internet capable devices with the intent to harass or threaten another. And of course, social media just exacerbates the problem. So we need to be aware in our daily lives as well as in our internet lives, on our social media. And our case today is a stalking case. It is one of the first stalking cases that goes hand in hand with internet use. A devastating case about a woman who had no idea or sign that she was being stalked. Stalking is a serious crime. And at the end of this episode, I will provide resources for where you can go to get help if you are experiencing any stalking. With that, are you ready for today's case? 
In 1999, 20-year-old Amy Boyer is in her final year of college, and on top of all the responsibilities of a student, Amy has maintained two part-time jobs through the years since graduating in 1997 from Nashua High School in New Hampshire. Amy's stepfather, Tim Remsberg, remembers how cherished Amy was at each of those jobs. She had first started to work for a family friend who owned the local Dairy Queen there in Nashua, and eventually she becomes the manager here. But as her schedule fills up, she has to have a talk with her boss like, look, I'm so busy with school and my other job. I think I need to go ahead and drop this one. But remember, her boss is friends with Tim. So they continue to see each other here and there. And each time this boss would be like, Amy, you need to come back and work for me. Like, I cannot continue without you. You were such a great employee. And eventually he tells her that she has the option to pick her own hours and just work when she can. So she takes him up on it. This was perfect. And now Amy is able to set up a schedule that works in correlation with everything else going on in her life. And this isn't the only time a boss was vying for her to stay with them. Amy's second job is as an orthodontist assistant at John Bednar's orthodontist office. In this final year of school, though, her classes conflict with her work schedule, and she has to tell Dr. Bednar that she won't be able to continue working at the office anymore. He is super disappointed, and he tells her, you know what, no. I will change our hours here at the office if you want so that we can make things work with your school. Her parents were super proud that she was such a treasured employee. Tim says they knew a winner when they saw one. So October 15th, 1999 starts out as just another typical day in Amy's world. After working a shift at the orthodontist's office, she heads out to the parking lot with a few co-workers at about 4.30 p.m. The orthodontist's office sat inside of a little strip mall off of Auburn Street there in Nashua, New Hampshire. So it's daylight, there are multiple people around, multiple businesses open. It feels safe. And Amy was completely oblivious to the fact that her life was about to be stolen from her. As she hops into the driver's seat of her car, a man in a silver Nissan Sentra speeds up beside her. He pulls out a Glock 9mm semi-automatic handgun. This is a pretty typical handgun that many people own. It is a popular pistol. And the man points the gun at Amy, shooting her multiple times. Her body is riddled with 11 hollow point bullets. And I talked with Jacob about this specific gun and the bullets used because I know basically nothing when it comes to guns and he understands it a lot more than I do. But he says that a hollow point bullet is meant to do more damage while a full metal jacket might travel straight through a target. The hollow point bullet will expand upon impact. So this shows us just how devastating this attack was to Amy to be shot 11 times with this type of bullet. It was a heinous and cruel crime. Immediately following Amy's murder, the perpetrator turns the Glock on himself, taking a shot to his head in an attempt to take his own life. Terror runs through everyone who is witnessing what's going on. 911 is quickly dialed and an operator answers. 911, what's your emergency? Yes, there's been a shooting on Auburn Street. Thank you, sir. Do you know if the assailant is still nearby? Sir? Yes, I'm sorry. Do you know if the assailant is still nearby? No. It looks like he just drove and shot her and then effing shot himself. 
So Tim Remsburg tells Chris Wright of Murder.com that he was putting gas in his car when Dr. John Bednar calls his wife Helen Remsburg. This is Amy's mom. And Dr. Bednar just didn't have the heart to tell her exactly what happened. He is like, all I can tell you is you need to come to the hospital right now. There's been an accident involving Amy and a criminal investigation has been started. So Helen doesn't really know what to think of this call, but it rightfully sends her into a panic. So she calls her husband, Tim, to let him know that he needs to get to the hospital. She will meet him there. So he's out at the gas station putting gas in her his car. She's at home and they're going to meet at the hospital. Okay. But so now Tim is speeding away from the gas station and he actually decides to head straight for the orthodontist office. He's thinking that this is an accident, right? So first thought is a car accident, and he wants to go to the scene. While he starts out towards the orthodontist's office in no rush, thinking that it's probably something small, he starts getting himself worked up as he thinks of Dr. Bednar's words, saying that there was a criminal investigation started. Now he's thinking to himself that this accident may have involved a drunk driver, and that's obviously cause for more concern. So now he starts speeding up. Tim almost makes it to Amy's workplace when an ambulance flies past him in the opposite direction. In this moment, he can just fill in his gut that something terrible has happened to Amy. So Tim flips a U-turn and follows behind the ambulance that was speeding towards the hospital. Amy Boyer had died in the ambulance on the way. She is taken into a trauma room at the hospital while Tim is escorted into a waiting room. There are paramedics, police, and hospital staff filling the area. What happened? Tim is asking to see Amy. He's asking questions about the incident, but no one is giving him a solid answer. He catches wind that officers believe Amy was shot and killed, but they tell Tim that they need to confirm that the victim is in fact his daughter. And they're not able to have him identify her. The wound she suffered made it impossible to identify her based on hair color or dental records. So although Tim feels like he is waiting around for hours to get a solid answer, police soon make a confirmation that the woman shot was Amy. At first, Tim can't accept it. He's like, absolutely not. How can you even say it's her when she's not recognizable? But there were witnesses to the shooting. Amy was in her own car. It was definitely her. And this realization slaps Tim in the face when he realizes that Helen is headed to the hospital right now. And he's going to be the one that has to break the news to her. So it all felt like too much to be the one to hand her the very worst moment of her life. And the devastation was comparable to the pain Tim felt when he had to have the hard conversation with his 10-year-old daughter, Amy's little sister, Jenna. He told Chris Wright that as tears streamed down her face, she's pounding on her dad's chest, crying out, asking him why. I know. Isn't that sad? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, she's just devastated. And he said, like, how is a parent even supposed to answer that question? Because he himself couldn't understand why. So was she in the orthodontist parking lot when this happened? Yeah. She had just gotten into her car. Like, she hadn't even backed out of her parking spot or anything. So this was after work? Yeah. Okay. So she's leaving work. And before she even knows it, she's shot. She probably honestly didn't even have time to know what was going on yeah and i hate when these killers kill themselves i know i it's like i don't i hate 
like the idea of suicide in general. Like I don't want anybody to take their own life. But if you're going to kill someone and then take your own life, I always wonder like why? Like just like focus on yourself. (laughs) Don't take anybody with you. I don't want anyone taking their own life ever. But like don't if you're going to do that, don't take anybody else's life. I know. Like, you're not going to be here anyway. I never understand. It's the same with the family annihilators and stuff. Yeah. Like, why are you going to kill your whole family and then take your own life? Exactly. I don't get it. And then it feels like no justice, really. I know. You're kind of just left with it. You can't, like, ask questions or ask why or... Yeah. Not that they would give you a decent explanation but but there's like no reason it just feels like you're robbed of yeah yeah totally but this person who murdered amy was brought to the same hospital she was and he actually lived for a half hour longer than amy but is eventually pronounced dead at the hospital from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head so who is this man Amy had been dating her longtime boyfriend at this time, and at first, it could seem like domestic violence could be a possibility, but it's quickly ruled out because the car that pulled up beside her was not her boyfriend's, the gun was not his, and the man who took his own life was not her boyfriend. In fact, he was devastated by this loss. Their life together was just beginning. The couple actually had plans to purchase her parents' home and start their own life there where she grew up. And they were really excited about the future. She's in this final year of college. Like everything's kind of coming together for them to start their own life. And none of her family or friends could think of a single possible suspect. There was no way that Amy had a target on her back. She had no enemies, or so they thought. What no one, including Amy, knew was that she had unknowingly been a victim of stalking for the last eight years. While she never even had a sign about what was to come, a man named Liam Ewins had been obsessively keeping an eye on her and detailing his plans to murder her on a public website he created, amyboyer.com. Whoa. So he, yeah, he made a website with her name, amyboyer.com. This is in 1999. So the internet's pretty fresh, right? I don't know. I was like four. So I do not remember where the internet was, but do you? Like, did everybody have computers? Was it used a lot? Not really. I can't remember life without it actually but I mean yeah I think it was used it was a lot slower because like had anybody ever put Amy's name into the internet if Google was around and whatever this would have popped up but I don't think the internet was like quite as prevalent as it is now yeah I always just search my name on Google just to see what's out there I have too have you ever done that yes but (laughs) you need to go there's this website that a police officer sent to me and she's like friends with Kendra and we were just talking and I was saying like I hate the idea of people like looking you up and finding out information and she sent me this website I'm not even going to say it on here because people don't need to go use it but that they use you know in the police force and other people can use it too if they pay And she was like, you need to go remove all your information off of here then. Literally everything has your name on there, your age, my age, all our family members, different addresses for everybody. 
I was like, this should be illegal wow. to put people's information out on the internet like this. Yeah. But I, you, you can remove it. So I suggest everybody to go find anywhere that their address is and remove it. Well, yeah. All my stuff is just nurse practitioner. Really? <laughs> so funny. Yeah. I'm going to have to send you the website and you'll have to look yourself up on it. But yeah absolutely hate that and so this is like a full public website anyone could have seen it anyone could have gone to it and it's like terrifying to know he used her own name amyboyer.com so one entry on this website reads i have always lusted for the death of amy i'll lay in wait across the street further down at 4 p.m when she gets in i'll drive up to her car blocking her in window to window i'll shoot her with my glock which is exactly what happened. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like it's a terrible website and it has been removed from the internet, but there have been some recreations and people, you can find all of the postings of the website in the police report. And so there's some things mentioned on just in different areas um, on what he has said. So I'll be reading some of them as we go through this. So Amy had met Liam at a church youth group gathering and Amy's family is unsure if the two even talked to each other, but Amy obviously made an impression on him. She was everything Liam was not. Amy was popular. She had a lot of friends and people adored her. While Liam is described by his own sister as a recluse, a loner, and his mom said that she didn't know of him having a single friend outside of his life at home. So he's very isolated. Yeah. Amy, during this youth group, takes no notice of Liam, um, nor did she notice him throughout their years of attending high school together. So they went to the same high school and church? Um, I think they just went to this one like youth group thing together. I don't think they like necessarily went to the same church like all the time. You know, I don't know if it was like a bunch of youth groups coming together and then they do go to the same high school for all the years of high school and they graduate the same year and everything. So yeah, he just like, he even wrote on his website at one point that he knows that Amy is giving him signs, even though she pretends like she never notices him. So in reality, you know, she's not noticing him, but he's trying to convince himself that she does. Yeah. He writes on the website he created, as I passed her from physics class, I saw Rose. No, God, no. But it was true. At lunchtime, I saw her with that guy. So it's after seeing Amy flirting with another boy around school that Liam is devastated. Since he had first seen her, he thought that he was in love with her. He says, quote, oh, great. Now I'm really depressed. Hmm. Looks like it's suicide for me. Car accident? Wrists? And then a few days later, I think, hey, why don't I kill her too? That was the basic plan for the next half decade. I work fast, don't I? So he's like deeply disturbed, obviously. He has been thinking of killing her yeah. since they were young in school. Oh my gosh. People are so weird. And it's like so scary because she didn't even know like that this obsession was brewing. She probably didn't even know him. No, I don't think she did. And that's what her family says. Like she didn't even know this kid. Like she never once had mentioned him. She had never said his name to any of her friends or family. He was like nothing in her life. 
but she is everything in his life. So Liam follows her personal life for the next two years until they graduate. They both graduate in 1997. And through that website, he details like a strong obsession with Amy and all of those in her home. He was like logging all of their comings and goings while he would wait around for Amy to come home. Here's kind of an example of his obsession. He writes on his webpage, in the last four years, I have had three or four dreams about Amy, but in the last month, I've dreamt about her every single night. The last dream I had, Amy was pregnant, so I stabbed the fetus through her, then cut her throat down to the bone and broke her neck with my hand. He's like so obsessed with her. And again, this is all public on the internet. Like this is just out there. Anyone could have seen it. That is so creepy. So creepy. And it's like, did he not realize it could have been seen and traced back to him? Or did he want to get caught? I don't know. It's just like very odd. And this website was up for two and a half years before he kills Amy. Two and a half years. I wonder if anyone went to it. I know no one that Amy knows did, but her stepdad feels like someone had to have. Like, why did no one reach out or, you know, try to find this person? I mean, it has her full name, Amy Boyer. And maybe, I don't know if it detailed that they were in New Hampshire, but it just, I don't know how many people saw it that they don't say that. But again, he's stalking Amy's home, stalking her family. Um, And because he had this really limited use of a car, he was just using his mom's car whenever he could. So he would stalk the family home, but Tim says he almost never saw Amy because of her schedule. She was super busy. She would go to work at 7 a.m. And then from there, she'd she'd go to school at 7 a.m., I mean. And then from there, she'd go right to work. So most of those nights, she would also go to her boyfriend's house and she wouldn't get home till like midnight. So he's not seeing Amy that much. And he does write on his website that he's super frustrated with this. One of the things he writes about his feelings when he first started stalking her was when I saw that car and looked at that house and realized Amy was asleep in there, endorphins flew. It was like crack cocaine. I have never felt that kind of rush in my life before or since. So he went there the first time and he obviously gets off on it. So did did his family have any clue that he was had mental issues? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So through this website, plans are like very detailed about how he wants to kill Amy, how he wants to kill her whole family. He actually writes about a plan where he is going to try and kill Amy on Christmas Eve. He thinks that he can get them all out of the house if he lights the house on fire, but leaves one exit open, like one exit not on fire, which... It's like, I'm not really sure how you would even do that, light a whole house on fire, but make sure that one exit is available. But he says by doing that, they'd all come out that same exit and he would kill all of the family members as they funnel out of the house. Oh my gosh. Didn't work, thankfully, did not happen. They actually, Tim says they had another family, like family friends, a family of four, staying with them for the holidays. They were visiting from Florida and they would have been killed as well. But Liam writes that he fell asleep on Christmas Eve, and this is the reason that they're spared. I don't really think this plan would have worked out well for him anyway. And Tim does recall 
many nights actually hearing deep breathing outside of his, his bedroom window. And at the time, he just kind of writes it off as neighborhood kids. Like he thinks they're outside playing pranks, playing with each other, playing night games. I don't know. But now looking back in hindsight, he thinks it was Liam maybe actually getting out of his car and coming up to their home windows, trying to look in. Yeah. Scary. That is so scary. Like that is so freaky to think of somebody outside your house. I don't think I would be able to hear breathing outside my window. I wonder if they had a smaller bedroom and maybe they have the window open. Oh. Because like you wouldn't leave your window open because it's like a door. Yeah, I don't leave my window open. No, I don't either. Never. (laughs) Never. I'm too scared. (laughs) Even when in the summer when we put those like AC things in the window where it has to have your window half open, I still got a window lock that you screw on to the windowsill. So it can't open any further than that. (laughs) Like I... Will not sleep with my windows open. No. Ah. I I also suggest none of you do either. So they didn't really <laughs> feel like somebody was like watching them or stalking them. But after the, like hindsight, he's kind of like, oh, maybe. Yeah. They like honestly really had no signs. This was maybe the only sign where he hears this breathing. And at that time, he just never could even wrap his mind around that it would be somebody stalking them. But looking back, knowing everything. That's weird how he kind of included the family. He becomes like he wants to kill them. And then he also, through that website, he also targets another kid from his high school. He also planned to kill a kid named Owen. I don't know if this was a boy that Amy had liked back then, if it was the boy she saw him with, if it was just someone he thought he didn't like. But he kind of goes on all these rants about wanting to kill other people. He wants to do a school shooting at one point. Like he details all these plans. But ultimately, like his obsession is mainly with Amy. And he obviously only takes her life before taking his own. Liam writes, update. For the past week, I have been crushed. I plan to go to NHS for the mass murder, but I found that I started crying and screaming. Should I wait until Christmas Eve to kill her instead of NHS? I imagined what it would be like to know where she worked. I want to kill as many people as possible, but I also want to concentrate on her and relish in her death. Make her suffer. Oh my gosh. Officer Pazin, he is one of the officers that is first on the scene and helps investigate this case. And he says that when you read through the website, you can actually tell that Liam is not a brave person. Liam writes on the website, I drove down Amy Street for the first time around 2.30 a.m. and parked my car and sat. After about 10 minutes, a car pulled down the street and passed me. I thought, oh, what the F am I doing here? I was about to leave, but the car wouldn't start. Oh, F. I call a tow truck at 3 a.m. to get my car for my first attempt at stalking. And you know what? Turns out I was so scared that I forgot to put the car in park to start it. Oh my gosh. Not very brave. (laughs) So I don't, uh, he's very worried. He even um, at one point on the website mentions that through the summer, Tim's truck was parked two nights in a row on the street. And this sends Liam into like anxiety that Tim now knows he is stalking Amy And this is Tim's way of telling Liam he knows. 
Which Tim is like, I had no idea. I can promise you, if I did find out you were stalking her or found that website, I w- you would have known. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wasn't going to be giving you subtle hints. But it's because of this that Liam decides he can no longer kill Amy there at her house because her stepdad must know that Liam has detailed all these plans on a website. Hmm. Which it's like the fact that he thinks the stepdad would know and that police wouldn't be immediately called. Yeah. Is very odd. But he convinces himself of this. And this is when he decides that he has to locate where Amy works and he has to kill her there. With the limited use of a car, he can't follow her to school and then to work. So he's not able to find out himself through stalking her where her employee address is. So in order to do this, he gets a hold of a website called DocuSearch.com. They have an office located in Boca Raton. Is that how you say it? It's in Florida. Boca, Boca Raton? Boca Raton? I don't know. But it's a city in Florida. And then there are two companies. It's DocuSearch and Wing of a Prayer or something like that. I think I have it um, written out later down here. But both these companies jointly own DocuSearch.com. They're owned by Khan and Zeese. These are their last names. Each of these men hold 50% stock of each company. Cone serves as the president of both companies, and Zeese serves as a director for Wing and a Prayer. So Cone is a licensed private investigator by the state of Florida and the Palm Beach and Palm Beach County in Florida. But neither DocuSearch nor its employees are licensed or registered to do business in any other state. So Liam contacts DocuSearch and he pays a $20 fee by MasterCard. And that same day, Zeus places a call back to Liam. And he doesn't remember the reason for his call, but he assumes that it was to verify Liam's order. So on the next day, July 30th, DocuSearch provides birthdays for several Amy Boyers, but none of them are the correct Amy. So Liam had contacted DocuSearch and paid this $20 fee, asking them to find Amy Boyer's birthday. And again, this is in 1999, so you can't find quite as much information on people, I think, as easy as you can now. So none of them end up being the correct Amy. I'm not sure if Liam is just able to figure this out because he knows they're about the same age or what. He then sends DocuSearch another email and he's like, okay, none of those were the right Amy. I need some better results. Can you find more information on Amy if I provide you with her home address. So later that day, he places another order for her social security number and gives DocuSearch her address to let them know this is the right Amy. So although DocuSearch can't provide her date of birth, on August 2nd, 1999, just months before the murder, they do obtain her social security number from a credit reporting agency And they sell it to Liam for $45. And they find this through the credit reporting agency as a part of like the credit header. Like I don't think the reporting agency gave it to them, but they were able to find it. Yeah. Then it's the next day. So this is on August 2nd, 1999. Liam gets her social security number. The next day on August 3rd, he places an order for employment information. Remember, he has to find out where... Amy works in his mind 
this is how he gets to her. So there's phone records that reveal that Zeiss places another phone call to Liam on August 6, 1999 that lasts less than a minute. They're probably just talking about this second order and verifying it. But by August 20th, 1999, Liam had received no response to that latest request. So he places another request for employment information. Both of those times, he paid a fee of $109 through his MasterCard. So he's like really trying to get her employment information. At this point, he's paid $218. That's weird that he just doesn't use his car to follow her. I mean, I know you said he didn't really have a car, but. Yeah, he just doesn't have access to it. He wouldn't be like, hey, mom, can I borrow the car for the afternoon? But I don't know if like his mom needed it at a certain time. So he like I'm wondering if he was never able to be there early enough to follow her to school. And then would never have the opportunity to then follow her to work. Because she leaves her school at 7. And I'm assuming he's not up and at it by like 6 a.m. But I don't know. Yeah. On September 1st, 1999, DocuSearch actually refunds Liam the first payment of $109. Because they had not obtained employment information about Amy. So, and then that second request is pending, but Liam is anxious. He doesn't have any patience to wait. So he places a third request for employment information on September 6, 1999. And this time he tries requesting something different, a locate by social security number. And with this, he pays a $30 fee. Oh my gosh. Psycho. Literally. Psycho. So the way that DocuSearch ends up obtaining Amy's work address is they have a subcontractor, Michelle Gambino. She's a private investigator and she places a pretext call to Amy. So I looked at pretexting and it's the practice of collecting information about a person using false pretenses. They say typically investigators pretext by calling family or coworkers under the pretense of some official purpose. So there are certain types of pretexting that were prohibited by a 1999 law, the Financial Services Modernization Act, which is also known as the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act or GLBA. And it prohibits pretext calls made to financial brokerage or insurance companies. But investigators can still call friends, relatives, or entities not covered by the GLBA under false pretenses in order to gain information on the victim. So that's kind of was the law on it at that time. So she places this pretext call to Amy. And what she says, Michelle lies and says, you know, I'm calling because I'm with I'm affiliated with your insurance company and I just need to request verification of your work address in order to facilitate an overpayment refund. So she's saying that Amy has overpaid on her insurance, that Michelle is affiliated with her insurance, which she's not, and that she needs her work address in order to return this money she overpaid. So it is like straight up lying. Man, that would make you mad if your kid got killed at their work. Oh, yeah. And somebody called and got the address. Her parents were pissed and they sue these people. I was going to say, could they sue? Yes. Yes. And they absolutely do. So it is September 8th, 1999 that DocuSearch informs Liam that Amy worked for Dr. John Bednar at 5 Main Street, Nashua, New Hampshire. 
Now he has the address. This is just one month, a little more than one month before he murders Amy. So this is obviously leading directly to him fulfilling his plan. Yep. He writes on his website, quote, I wish I could have killed her in high school. I need to kill her so I can transport myself back into high school. I need to stop her from having a life. If I had a life myself, I really wouldn't care even if I was in love with her. So to me, that's him saying like he has no life. He has nothing. He's a loner. So if he had a life, he wouldn't care. But because she has a life, work and school and boyfriend, he wants her to die. Like, if I had a life myself, I really wouldn't care even if I was in love with her. Well, you're not in love with her because you don't kill people you love. You have an infatuation that's very unhealthy. Oh, geez. Mental illness is just something else. It really is. I'm always like, I just, I can't understand this, but... I mean, yeah, I think that is the... It's hard for me to understand. Yeah, I think that's a hard thing. Like, in true crime, we all want to understand why. Like, even with the Idaho murders case and Brian Koberger. Like, we want to know why he did this. But kind of a sad reality is that we're re- like we could never probably understand because we don't have those minds. Right. So it will never make sense to us why these people do these things. We don't think that way. No. Yeah. Yeah, it really is something else. So Liam Ewins, he lived with his mom, Clarissa London, his aunt, his niece, and whichever siblings of his lived at home. It sounds like his dad lived elsewhere, so his parents aren't together. And then whatever siblings lived there kind of varied because he was the youngest of six siblings. The family had four boys and two girls. So in a police interview, his aunt says that at one point he had come back from um, some schooling he did. And she said he was acting crazy and talking about wanting all these guns and how he was always wanting to target practice. And they were kind of afraid of him, which I feel like there is probably more context there because just somebody wanting a gun and wanting to target practice, not always a red flag, but I think they knew he was mentally struggling so that mixed with the kind of loner he is and all of these things made them really scared of him which yes if somebody is acting this crazy you don't want them to have a gun they should not have access to anything like that so right a little bit about Liam is he was five feet 11 inches tall he weighs about 130 130 pounds and he thought he was very unattractive and he thought he was too thin his mom said he would never let anyone take his picture which like I can feel bad for him in high school like before he commits this murder or before he even starts detailing once he starts detailing it all and putting his thoughts out there he's pretty scary to me but before all of this like being so lonely and isolated that's really sad It is. To like live your life that way. And clearly, I don't know about his family, but it just seems like no one was really there for him, including his family. Like Clarissa, his mom says she reiterates that he was a loner. She says he barely even talked to the family. He mostly survived off frozen pizza and soda, and he always ate alone in his room. He never wanted the door unlocked and Clarissa couldn't even remember the last time she had been inside his room so that's kind of where I'm like I don't really feel 
I kind of feel not that it's his family's fault, but just that his family did let him kind of isolate himself. It sounds like instead of trying to maybe pull him out of it and maybe they couldn't, maybe they had tried and it wasn't worth it. Yeah. But like you can't even remember the last time you had gone in your kid's room. Like, does he clean it? <laughs> I don't think so. Cause police say it was disgusting. Oh my God. But you know, He's just spending tons of hours on his computer. Even at school, he's eating lunch alone. He friends, well, friends, he didn't have friends. Classmates said that they just rem- they don't really remember much about Liam. No one really knew him. They just remember he was that kid who would be alone in the corner of the cafeteria eating his food by himself. He wrote about his bullying In the beginning, I was not yet self-aware of my own existence. La, la, la. My main focus in life was, God, I hate being made fun of. I can't wait to get out of school. He had also worked for a bit at a local Burger King and also at a 7-Eleven gas station. Coworkers said he was less than ideal. He was always on his Game Boy. He was ignoring customers. He was not a great employee, contrary to Amy, who was an incredible employee. Again, she's just like everything that he is not. And the owner of the 7-Eleven, he said that he felt something was going on on inside of Liam. Like he got a weird feeling from Liam and he kind of knew that something was not right. Liam writes, the NPD believed it could prevent me from getting guns. Ha. Some people thought that me working at 7-Eleven was hilarious. Idiots. The only reason I would get that job would be to spend every cent I earned on powerful assault rifles to execute my vengeance. I have always lusted for the death of Amy. Liam's estranged father is Leonard Ewens. It just sounds like the parents are not together. They say estranged father, but I think it's like estranged maybe just because he doesn't live at the home because it's also said that he doted on his son. So I think he was involved at least a little bit. Chris Wright, who interviewed him, said he sighed a lot when he was talking about it. Like he was just probably devastated that this is what his son's life came to and what his son did with his life. So he was just sighing and like upset about the whole thing. I guess that Liam smoked a lot, like a pack a day of cigarettes. And Leonard says, quote, I tried to persuade him to stop smoking. He just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't know what his problems were. I am sort of at a loss as to why I never asked him more questions. In hindsight, I should have. It's sad for them, too, though, because they lost their son. Oh, yeah. I always feel bad for the family because it's, like, not their fault. Yeah. And, I mean, his dad's even recognizing here that, like, dang. I should have asked him more questions, but I don't think anyone actually thinks, you know what? My son is going to do like this heinous thing. Yeah. Overall, Leonard actually does describe Liam as a gentleman. That's how Leonard knew him. But we know his thoughts were far from gentle. Liam was filled with rage. He absolutely loved watching the CNN breaking news. He said that was one of the best feelings when he would see like the words come across the TV. CNN breaking news. He loved like helicopter shots, itty like bad event that was going on with people running or SWAT teams or where there were guns drawn that like gave him a rush. He writes that it's not as good as the Amy death high, but still quite enjoyable. 
He also identifies with Luke Woodham. Uh, I guess this is a Pearl, Mississippi teen who had killed his mom. And then he went to his school in October of 1997 and shot two girls to death. Mm. And this is something else he wrote on his website. When Luke Woodham went on his rampage, people called his note rambling and said the shooting was a boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Ha. What an obvious attempt to put him beneath you. You know full well that he would have never done it if he was not psychologically abused in school, regardless of a past relationship. So kind of tying back to like he himself, Liam, I think feels that he was psychologically abused in school. And seeing how people didn't really take notice to him and he was very lonely and isolated he probably was made fun of and bullied and that's like not okay and it's sad but I always go back to like I feel bad for people that are bullied I would love bullying to end I also think it's like no excuse yeah yeah it's like not an excuse to murder someone yeah remember you did your senior project on bullying I did I have the worst memory Really? I really did. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember anything about my life. Oh. Oh. Well, I- I'm glad I did. I do actually kind of remember that, I think, because I did it a lot with the that other stuff, right? Yeah. Your pageants? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Some people, d- some people don't love pageant people. <laughs> but you learn a lot of good things, guys. Well, you don't need to be ashamed about it. I know. With that other thing. <laughs> <laughs> that they helped you a lot. I know, but I think there's you should like be proud of it. That's true. There's like a bad. You got money for school. Exactly. There's a bad stigma around it. Like I listen to so many podcasts, and I swear, like all my favorite people, I always like if you they bring up a pageant, they're just like, "Oh, pageants are horrible. Like this is the worst thing ever." But I will say, like beauty pageants, I think looking in on them do seem very like odd. But you do, yeah, yes. But I do think, like, you learn a lot from being in one. Yeah. You do interviews. Like you said, I got money for school. That's funny. You called me out. You have platforms. (laughs) Like, no bullying. Yes, you do, like, a platform. Yes, you, like, work with the community. So I think there are... It's not all just about looks. No, it's not all about the beauty stuff. But anyway... So in 1997, Liam graduates from Nashua High School and enrolls at the Rochester Institute of Tech in Rochester, New York. He's super unhappy, so he actually drops out after a year. He comes home and he lasts just one semester at a college that is local there in New Hampshire. He writes on his website, Well, I got accepted to and attended RIT College, but I was always thinking of the plan to kill Amy. When I would come home from college during break, I would mildly stalk Amy. For some reason, I chose this point to F with school. I tried to buy a bus ticket to go back home, but found myself sobbing uncontrollably because I didn't want to leave the people that I knew. Which is kind of weird because there were rumors that he was expelled from RIT for starting a fire. However, that was never corroborated by the police. Um, And then he also wrote in a different area on his website that something odd happened at RIT. I don't want to talk about it. 
So I don't know what that was, what it could have been. Maybe it's in reference to some sort of fire he started. Maybe it's in reference to something else. But then he writes when he wanted to go back home, he's like sobbing uncontrollably. So I don't know. When Liam does come back from RIT, he starts complaining to his mom. Remember, his mom said he like felt he was really unattractive and he wasn't happy with how he looked. So he's like being really persistent to his mom to get him plastic surgery to fix his sunken chest, which I don't really know what exactly that means. Like what's a sunken chest? Just that he's like super skinny um, or... Some people are born with, uh, it's called like pectus excavatum. Okay. And that literally like the babies look like um, like their ribs, just their upper part of their chest, like right where their xiphoid processes that right uh-huh. there. That it uh, just naturally like curves in. Okay. So maybe he had that or... Maybe he did. You know, and he just didn't like it or he's super skinny and he like wants... I don't know what plastic surgery he's thinking of, whether that's like pec muscles implanted or like actual surgery to fix his sunken chest if he has that condition. But basically his mom tells him that he's being silly and that he's not, she's not going to get him plastic surgery and he is pissed. So he actually takes her china cabinet and he throws it down a flight of stairs She calls the police, he is arrested, and then he is convicted of criminal threatening and criminal mischief, and he's ordered to attend anger management classes, and he's put on probation for six months. Oh, how how long and before was this? Before the murder? Um, This was just within the year before. Okay. Yeah. So not long before the murders, it's after he graduates high school, like he's a full on adult living at his mom's house and does this. Okay. I didn't know if it was like he got all that sentence like right before and it made him feel like hopeless or something. Mm, Yeah. It's kind of varied because I've seen sources that said it was in 1996, but then I've seen other sources that said it was in 1997 after he got home from RIT. So I actually can't place if it was like before he went to college at RIT or after. But if it was after, it would have been fairly recent before that. So like maybe made him lose a little bit of hope or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when he is arrested, he actually threatens to take his own life. And his mom tells a reporter that she doesn't think he was being serious She just did not take these threats for what they were. However, on his website, he writes that his mom ignored his signs of being suicidal, which I do think there were signs, but maybe she's was not educated on that or didn't know what to look for. Maybe didn't even know what to do. Yeah. And was just hoping things would resolve as he got older. I think sometimes people too, like, if people like if your kids like gets in trouble like oh I'm gonna kill myself might not take it serious like you think they're just trying to get out of trouble yeah yeah so you know she's like misunderstanding how serious his threats are and he feels that she's ignoring him I just don't think there was a lot of communication going on in this family so Following the tragedy when he commits a murder-suicide, two families have to mourn for their children. 
Amy's funeral mass is on a Tuesday at the Church of Good Shepherd in downtown Nashua. There are crowds of people, lots of people mourning. The media is there. The police also have a presence there. Um, and people just said it felt like the entire town showed up to support her. And then Liam's funeral is also in Nashua the very next day. And everyone described the town as more of a ghost town. Tim Remsberg, Amy's stepdad, says, If only one person in this whole wide internet would have told us about this page, we would have had a very Merry Christmas. Amy was one of the most genuinely caring and loving people I have ever had the pleasure to meet, and even more importantly, be a stepfather to. If we all lived our lives and held the values Amy did, the world would not just be a better place, it would be a perfect place in which to live. So she's described as gentle, caring, affectionate. She was a loyal friend. She was super friendly. She had a lot of passions. She's obviously working super hard. So Amy Lynn Boyer was a beautiful young woman who is going to be missed by many people. And this tragedy very well could have and should have been avoided. So he, her stepdad created this website for Amy, um, just in her memory, and he writes about her a lot on there, um, just kind of goes through the crime, and he says that he wishes more than anything that he would have just put Amy's name into the search bar yeah. on the internet. Her stepdad sounds like he was a really good dad to her. Yeah, it's really never mentioned. I tried to find who her dad was, but I found really no information on her dad. So I'm not sure if he was just uninvolved or if he had died. I don't know, but it sounds like her stepdad, yeah, was very close with her and like basically her dad. So... Um, Amy does did have one brother and they enjoyed going to concerts together. She'd go over to her brother's house and have cookouts with him and his friends. He's older than her, so he had a place on it of his own there in New Hampshire. And then she had that one little sister. Amy loved to take her shopping. She'd take her pumpkin picking and she'd help her with her homework. She just really enjoyed spending time with her siblings as well as her family. They had a campground that they would often go to. She loved boating and anything outdoors and she was very close with her mom. Tim said that he has hardly ever seen a mother and a daughter that were this close in their love and mutual respect for each other. He says that Amy never left or entered the home without a kiss and saying, I love you. So her family values were super important. She was super close with her grandparents. She had six sets of grandparents, Tim says. I have a ton of grandparents too. And she just loved it. Like it was just more people for her to be close with. Um, and then he said she was super close with all of her friends, even the ones she had made in the town they lived in before, because the family had actually moved to Nashua, New Hampshire in 1990. And Amy always remained close with the friends she left behind. For Tim, the whole thing was a lot to take on, and he yeah. has been really angry about it. So he says, personally, that he would kill Liam if he wasn't already dead. But her brother says 
that he can forgive Liam. Brian Boyer says, quote, this is something I've thought about a lot since my sister got killed. I don't blame Ewan's as much as I blame other things. His situation, his inability to cope with everyday stresses. God knows what his life was like. And Brian is actually a social worker in the Nashua area. He goes on to say, my concern is with kids that are isolated and alienated. The kid that killed my sister was both alienated and isolated. For me, that sends a flag. That tells me that something was wrong. I'd like to reach out to kids like him. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. I know. To have that, like, insight. He doesn't, like, blame him individually. Yeah. And more, like... The circumstances. Yeah. And I can see both sides. I can see Tim being angry and hating him. And I can see Brian having that empathy with like how this kid must have grown up and how isolated he was. Liam wrote on his website, one time when I got pulled over, the cop said that there there are people that care about me. That was very sweet and nice and I am receptive to it, but that still doesn't change anything. Notice how my mood has changed here from my previous rant. That's me, Mr. Moody. So I just put that in there because it's just another sign of his mental illness. You can like clearly see he's struggling. So a little bit about Tim, Amy's stepdad. He's a salesman for a building supplies firm. Um, But now he spends a lot of time advocating against like the dangers of the internet. So he writes letters to congressmen. He calls on state representatives. He's debated internet lawyers. He went on CNN's Burden of Proof. He also takes his story to 2020, 48 Hours, and Court TV. And then he has been featured talking about these subjects in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. So he really starts advocating. He has a lot of anger and that kind of just about the situation and that really fueled him to like stand up and stand against it. So um, there's one year where he does stand before the Senate and that Chris Wright reporter from murder.com reports on it. Tim stands up and he says, quote, we must show Amy that we care about what happened to her and that we are going to act to see it doesn't happen to another. Remember, Amy Boyer is listening. The time for action is now. And a New Hampshire Senator, Judge Gregg, had announced at that time that he was co-sponsoring legislation that would outlaw the sale of social security numbers online. He was working with the Social Security Administration and the White House was on board. So they had a bill that they were presenting, the Amy Boyer bill, and it was expected to pass. I could not find if it passed or not. So I hope it did because... I would love for people not to be selling information. Oh, yeah. So, like, along with that stuff he did, um, the family, Helen and Tim Remsburg, they also sued GeoCities and Tripod, which was the hosting site for Liam's website, amyboyer.com. He wants these sites to monitor things where words like kill, murder, rape, bondage, things like that are used. He says... They should have someone sitting in front of a computer all day doing nothing but hunting for the people who are hunting us. Mm, That makes sense. Um, And then at that time, soon after her murder, they entered a battle with the domain name company, which was register.com. 
And this company refused to free up amyboyer.com after the murder. So Liam Ewens owned that name, that website name, until June of 2001. So a few years after he killed her. And that was really hard for her parents. Tim said even in his death, he still had a hold on Amy, which it's like the dude's dead. Just free up the name, like give it back to her family. I know. I'd never understand things like that. That's weird that they wouldn't. Like, I get the rules of your company or whatnot. Yeah. But it's like there are circumstances to things. Yeah, it's like you're talking about two deaths here. Make an exception. Absolutely. So, Helen Remsberg, Amy's mom, does end up suing DocuSearch. I talked to you about that. Said that they did end up suing. The suit is brought forward on February 18, 2003. And Paul Barbadoro is the chief United States district judge that ruled on the case. Amy's mom said that DocuSearch reasonably should have known of the potential danger to Amy of its unauthorized disclosure of her personal information to Liam. So she was suing for a few different things. She was suing for wrongful death, invasion of privacy, and a couple other things. So the invasion of privacy requires that the plaintiff would have to have a reasonable explanation of privacy. Now, the defendants in this DocuSearch lawsuit is not just DocuSearch.com. So it's that company, Wing and a Prayer, Inc. It's Daniel Cohn, Kenneth Zeese, and Michelle Gambino. So we talked a little bit about it earlier. Cohn and Zeese are the owners of Wing and a Prayer and DocuSearch. And then Michelle Gambino was that private investigator who was a subcontractor that made that pretext phone call where she lied about being connected to the insurance company. So at one point, the defendants do move to dismiss the case, but the judge actually sides with Helen Remsberg because he thinks that she has sufficient proof to support her argument that DocuSearch's contact with Liam in New Hampshire were a cause, in fact, of Amy's death. So he denies the motion to dismiss. So it's the New Hampshire Supreme Court that rules on this case. And they have about like 12 different things they rule on officially. So at this point in time, there were approximately 1 million women and 371 thousand men that were stalked annually in the United States. So the court does conclude that the risk of criminal misconduct is sufficiently foreseeable. So an investigator does have the duty to exercise reasonable care in disclosing a third person's personal information to a client. And they say that this is especially true, as in this case, when the investigator does not know the client or the client's purpose in seeking information. Now, the defense says that those deceived by a pretext phone call, like the phone call that Michelle Gambino made, saying that she's affiliated with the insurance, the defense says that they they lack standing to maintain a private cause of action. But the court disagrees and says that according to a statute, any person injured by another use of any method, act, or practice declared unlawful under this chapter may bring an action for damages. So in this Remsburg versus DocuSearch court case, they agreed to settle and DocuSearch paid Helen Remsburg $85,000. There's a quote on that court case And it's from Liam's website. And he had written, it's actually obscene what you can find out about people on the internet. So I'm glad that she won that 
money and the Supreme Court ruled that information brokers and private investigators can be liable for the harms caused by selling personal information. So on the night of the murders, Detective Pazin and other officers are able to go into Liam's bedroom and this is where they piece together all the pieces of this puzzle that we've gone through. Pazin said that the room was quote, very dirty, disheveled, and disorganized. We observed five various types of firearms propped against the wall and what happened to be well over 100 rounds of ammunition strewn on the floor. Police also find photos of Amy and pornographic clips, as well as violent video games such as Doom and Quake. I don't know what those video games are, nor do I really know if that plays a role (laughs) here, but They also find six firearms that were all purchased recently, right before the murders and legally from Walmart, gun shows, and through want ads, which I don't think you can like place ads online anymore for guns, Yeah, but I could be wrong. And then this is when they discover the website amyboyer.com and that pulls together like a big piece of the puzzle as they're able to piece together what he was planning and this really deep obsession that was chronicled for two and a half years they're like and that tells us why yeah it's like was a look into his mind on that website he had also posted photos of himself posing with an assault rifle again it also kind of relays some obsession to his high school the bullying that he went through and they can tell by graduation he's in a full-blown mania Once Liam obtains her employer's address and he's stalking her more and more often, he writes on his website, update, on on Thursday, October 7th, I was making excuses because I was scared. I still feel uncomfortable about sitting in the parking lot. I pray to God that she parks on the street like last Friday, but I doubt it. My mother is going on vacation, so I would be able to use her car. That may make me bold enough to park in the lot at 4.30. Since I wasn't going to kill her today, I wanted to get the exact time she leaves, so I can minimize the time I would have to park there. I went around and around doing my best not to get noticed. I saw her. I saw her. I saw her. At 4.47 p.m. Thursday, she was at a red light near the office, and I came in from the side. She didn't notice me, I don't think. She looked wonderful, like seeing God herself. I think I might have seen her before on a bike and felt nothing because I wasn't sure if it was her. I may be mistaking these feelings of euphoria for love, but who knows? It may be that because I only see her in my dreams. When I see her in real life, I feel like my dreams mix with reality. Why didn't I do anything? It was really fast. I didn't have time to process what was happening. Also, I can't just hang around. She must never see me there. I wonder with the charges he got, like, if there are any assault charges or anything, I don't think you're allowed to have any type of weapons. Yeah. It was for what? Criminal, I don't remember, criminal mischief and criminal something. With him getting six months of probation, I wonder if they kind of dropped everything to a misdemeanor. Because you can still buy a gun once you have a misdemeanor, right? But not if you have a felony. I'm not sure. I thought it was with any, like, assault or anything. I'm not either. I mean, at least in Utah. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. It was criminal threatening and criminal mischief. So maybe it was just not quite enough. But those are kind of things 
it's definitely an imperfect system because those are things that should be taken into account him like having these really emotional reactions him like threatening to take his life when he's being arrested but I'm not sure how we go about fixing that and then he's able to buy like multiple guns yeah and he definitely was not a person that should have and he had never even been treated for mental illness either. So I'm not sure what things could have been put in place to stop him from purchasing one. But clearly, he should not have had one. Mm-mm. So Detective Pazin said that there is no history, like I just said, of him being treated for mental illness. But that a lot of issues were going on. And that's very clear. He just thinks that they were not diagnosed and going untreated. He says, quote, I don't point the finger at anybody, that, but there were people who could have helped. This kid gave out signs. He had them all. Somebody should have recognized this is not normal behavior. Just three days before the murder, Liam writes on his website, Update, Tuesday, October 12th. I saw her car on the street, the perfect place. I parked my car there and sat at 435, but by 505, she still wasn't there. What a waste of perfect opportunity. I drove around and saw that she had left around 545, but I didn't see her and had no place to shoot. I was still scared, but what was different about this time was that I didn't just turn around and not do it. I would have done it. I feel good now. Her car is flanked by the same ones. Weird. Also, the sticker was United States something. Boyfriend in the army? Question mark. Sister used the car around that time. Had to drive my niece at exactly 4 p.m. Flew into a rage and smashed my clock with a hammer and started screaming F at the top of my lungs. Now, there was one person, like we've said a million times, Liam had no friends. That's what everybody says, and he really didn't. But there is one person he would sometimes chat with online. Online? Online. And this was a kid named Peter. Peter is a Greece resident, and the two talked through email. So Peter was kind of egging him on, though. So Peter, I hope, maybe was investigated after this, or the police should have let Greece know, um, because Peter would actually tell Liam that he should not stop at a single killing, and he recommends Liam to go on a killing rampage. So he's kind of... Whoa. Yeah. It's like this is the one person in the world that Liam talks to when he has zero friends. And he's like, yeah, dude, kill them all. Go more. Yeah. Do more. So he's almost validating Liam's thoughts. And 15 minutes before the murder, Liam writes on his website, Peter, see if I did it. And then he adds like a link to a news website. So not sure if he just assumes what he's about to do is going to go up on this website and he hopes that Peter will be able to find it. Very odd. Tim and Helen, after all of this goes on, they actually decide to go over to Liam's family home. They say that they hadn't heard from the family, so instead they just decide to go over to their house on a Friday afternoon. They like just straight up walk up to the door and they knock on it, and it's Liam's brother who answers. Tim says that Helen's like, hey, is your mom home? And this brother says no, and he just starts to close the door. 
But Helen is like, no, I am talking to these people. So she actually puts her foot in the door so he can't shut it all the way. She kind of pushes her shoulder into it and the brother is like pushing back. And then Tim stops him and is like, hey, I don't think you're going to squish my wife in the door. And then Tim opens up the door and the brother kind of steps back and is like just standing there, which honestly, this would be kind of scary. <laughs> like, I know that Helen and Tim had good intentions, but like as a person who doesn't even open my door ever to anybody who knocks, like not knowing who somebody is and then them just like opening the door, I would be like, what is happening? So I think the brother was slightly nervous Tim's like, hey, do you know who we are? And this brother is like, no. And Tim says, we are Amy Boyer's parents. At this point, Liam's brother starts moving backwards and Tim can tell he's scared. But Tim says, son, we are not here to hurt you. Believe me, you have nothing to fear from us. He tells him that they're looking for answers. They just want to know where Liam came from. They want to know who he was as a person, what he had been through in his life. And Tim says this is because maybe they can get a sliver of that and then be able to take that, go home and make peace with it. He tells this brother, we are looking for a way through this. They didn't say what happened after that. Sounds like maybe they did have a little conversation with Liam's family after that. And maybe it was a bit of closure for them just to have that conversation. But in Helen and Tim's own home, they created this little garden. They call it the Garden of Love in Amy's honor. So they just filled it with flowers and it's a memorial to her. Helen is said to stay really busy with chores and just doing things around the home. However, after Amy's murder, people said that she really kind of went through life like she was recovering from paralysis almost just like relearning how to live normally again, just kind of going through the motions of running the house. That reporter, Chris Wright, that I've referred to a couple times, he actually went to the Remsburg home to talk with them for this interview he did. And he said that he's like having trouble finding their house and the neighborhood must like watch out for them now and just like be on high alert because again, there was a kids stalking this family for eight years and nobody knew so before the interviewer can even get to the Remsburg home they had received a call from neighbors about a strange car prowling in their cul-de-sac and so Helen goes outside she waves him down and I just thought that was kind of funny and like cute that the neighbors are like hey there's a guy driving around the street (laughs) that's nice yes So Amy Boyer's family wants support fighting for protection on the internet. Um, They have an email you can email them at. It's tim at amyboyer.org. And they have also set up the Amy Lynn Boyer Memorial Fund Against Criminal Violence um, at CO Bank Boston on 157 Main Street, Nashua, New Hampshire, 03060. They also, on this website that Tim has for Amy, at the bottom, they say that this, their website is um, hosted by ProSpeed. And if you out there need a website, if you use ProSpeed to set up your own webpage, 
ProSpeed will donate 100% of your domain hosting to the Amy Lynn Boyer Memorial Fund Against Criminal Violence if you mention this page while registering your own. So if you need a website, that's a little way that you can support them. Um, And that is the case of Amy Boyer, who was stalked completely unknowingly. That is a sad one. It is really sad, huh? Yeah. I feel so bad for her family. And shocking just how he actually did it. Yeah. I think stalking can be really scary because of that aspect where you like might not even know you're being stalked. Yeah. And we know there's not a ton of like laws against stalking or like for um, persecuting people who are stalking. It's almost like they don't do anything until it's too late. So that is the point of, yeah, National Stalking Awareness Month because it's so prevalent, but so many people are getting away with it. Yeah, they need to be harder on stalkers. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is Charlie Waters. And our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Find us on Instagram at True Crime X Pod, True Crime EX Pod. Find us on Twitter at True Crime Exposed Podcast minus one E, True Crime XPOSED, and on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast. I'll absolutely love you and wish I could kiss your face if you leave us a five-star written review and never forget to share your favorite episodes with your friends, family, and onto your social media. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters and today I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser. Bye, Charlie Waters. We are going to be talking about cows. Did you know that cows have pamarac ramic vision. Do you know what that is? Let me tell you because I'm sure you do not know yet. This means that cows can see all around them without moving their head. They have almost 360 degree vision. That's crazy. This makes them really sensitive by shadows and movements. Sometimes they won't even walk over a shadow, even though they have a shadow. But cows are sure cute. Bye. Have a great day. So again, I'm going to mention the Spark organization. Um, You can find them on Instagram at followuslegally. And their website is www.stalkingawareness.org. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, there is not a stalking hotline specifically, although it is a very dangerous crime and something that's happening to many people. So other hotlines you can call is Victim Connect Resource Center. You can call them at 855-4-VICTIM. That's 855-484-2846. There's also the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which you can call at 1-800-799-7233. A third hotline you can call to connect you with resources in your area is... 
the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which you can contact at 800-656-HOPE. Again, 800-656-HOPE. And you can also visit their website at rain.org.